Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 126. Are you interested in using Python in an industry outside of software development? Would adding a few custom software tools increase efficiency and make your coworkers' jobs easier? This week on the show, Josh Burnett talks about using Python as a mechanical engineer. I met Josh at PyCon 2022 in Salt Lake City, which he attended for the first time with several coworkers. He suggested we do an episode to shed some light on ways Python is being used professionally by people who aren't primarily programming for a living. Josh works as a mechanical engineer and an equipment manufacturer, where he needs to perform repetitive tasks and generate copious logs. He explains how he moved his team away from MATLAB and towards using Python. We discuss his progression from writing scripts to developing packages and eventually hosting his work on PyPI. He also shares his explorations with CircuitPython for personal and professional projects. This episode is sponsored by DeepGram. DeepGram is the preferred speech-to-text API of Python developers. Get accurate transcripts from any audio with features for understanding. Try it by transcribing 200 hours free at deepgram.com slash realpython. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Josh. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Christopher. Yeah, we ran into each other while I was working at the booth at PyCon in Salt Lake, and you said you had been a listener of the show, so thanks for being a listener. I was happy to. And then we started talking about what you do, that you had kind of brought a team of people from your work to PyCon. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that, your experience of coming to PyCon, and then we were talking just before we started about how you were interested in coming to PyCon 2020 because you live in or used to live in uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, I was interested in coming to PyCon, even though sort of my background, as we'll continue to talk about here, is a little kind of non-standard for the typical Python or PyCon crowd. I feel like a lot of people that have come to PyCon and are usually a programmer background. You know, they either come directly from programming or they're they are now, of course, now lots of data scientists, but a lot of times their job title maybe is they're some sort of a software developer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And But I'm a mechanical engineer, and most of my team is various types of engineers, so mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, uh, or systems or process engineering. So a bunch of us will use programming as one of our tools in our tool belt, but that's not our job description per se. It's just something we <laughs> use to accomplish the rest of our tools. Yeah. Yeah, I was excited to try to come to PyCon back in 2020. I was looking forward to it, and then obviously COVID happened, so that that didn't happen. I was pretty bummed then when not only that year, and then the next year was canceled because, yeah, I was looking forward to going back to my hometown. And yeah, yeah. I was looking forward to going back there, and I went to Carnegie Mellon, so I was going to go back and see the campus and see <laughs> how things were there. And yeah, uh, that obviously didn't happen. So I am excited that 
I believe the current plans are that after this next year, repeating at Salt Lake City, they're going to... Yeah, 24? Yeah, they'll go back to Pittsburgh. Because it's a lot of effort, uh, my understanding, to plan a a PyCon, to say the least. And they get to reuse all those vendor relationships that they had been setting up that they had to cancel. They can sort of step in where they left off. So that's great that they're able to do that. Right. And then I think that's why they keep doing it uh, like two years in a row at a a particular place. Yeah, Cuts down on the overhead. Yeah. Yeah, at least uh, they kind of know what they're getting, hopefully, next That's year. That's right. That's right. Can uh, optimize. <laughs> so I was happy to be able to bring not just myself to PyCon uh, this year, though, but instead a whole team of people from my company. I was happy that I was able to pitch that to kind of the decision makers. And they said, yeah, we've got money in the training budget. And if people are interested, we can do it. So kind of looked around to see who was interested in coming. What, what kind of work do they do? The same kind of thing, mechanical engineering? Or is it a mix? Uh, we had people that came. I think there were four of us that were mechanical engineers, uh, at least two that were called process engineers. So they kind of work in the manufacturing side of things. Mm-hmm. And then we had uh, two more systems engineers as well. Okay. So they're, they're part of the, we're all part of the process of making new products. You know, I, I work at a company that called Werfen that makes healthcare diagnostic equipment, basically kind of specialty diagnostics. And they've got a few sites around the world, but my site in the Boston area focuses on different kinds of blood analysis. Yeah, I saw the buzzword there of next generation instrumentation platforms. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, you know, most of the time, if you're at a company that makes, you know, lab instrumentation, then each of those products that you make that you're working on is usually based on kind of a, a platform that the company has previously developed. And you're taking something that's already been made and released and maybe you're tweaking it, making some incremental improvements or maybe just changing it a little to target a slightly different market, adding some new features or something. But it's fundamentally an incremental update to what you did before. Okay. But if you're lucky and you get some good timing, you at the company at sort of just the right time when it's they need to redesign the whole platform. All right. Both my last company that I was at and my current company now it's happened where the, the product that they're selling is based on electronics that are getting pretty long in the tooth. Mm. You know, you don't want to have to change that underlying platform too often because there's a lot of uh, investment that goes into writing the the firmware, the, the low-level code that runs these embedded systems. Okay. They don't want to redo that more often than they have to. Can I pause you there? Like, if... Mm-hmm. So I have a friend who uh, writes for RealPython, Jim Anderson, and he... I don't know, you might have met him at, at the show. He was everywhere at PyCon uh, introducing people uh, to me. But he works in video as a platform and, and does a similar thing of building firmware and, and so forth. And we were talking before we started a little bit about photography and how much that's just rapidly changed and updated and you know almost sort of obsolescence is like uh, just a built-in factor. Yes. In the case of the tools that you work with, What's the lifespan of a platform? I guess it would accelerate in, in the way that chips and stuff are changing so much now. Uh, it's sort of the other way around. So the with my current company being in the healthcare industry, it's all FDA regulated. Mm. And there's an enormous amount of effort that goes into qualifying your product, making sure that it does you know exactly what you say it's going to do it does it okay. reliably and every time you're getting the proper results because you know you're giving people diagnoses based on these results right so the fda you know, they uh, they're very stringent about their their uh, quality levels there okay and as such once you put something into the market if you make major changes to it or even 
not so major changes, you have to go back to the FDA and show them <sighs> that these changes we've made don't affect the outcome of when you use the product. Okay. So the, they call that validation. And, and you, you want to avoid having to revalidate as much as possible because it's a lot of work. Yeah, sounds like it. So as such, the lifetimes of these products can be in the 10, 15, or even 20-year span for a given platform. Okay. And you guys are working on generally updating them and, and figuring out yes. how to create a long lived <laughs> That's right. uh, platform. Yeah. Yeah. Over the course of that 20 years, it's not just the same product that that's the only thing you sell for those 20 years, but you put up the first one and then you, you branch out and you base other things on that same platform. But now, you know, we're starting to get to that. Okay. These electronics are getting really old and maybe some of them are going to go obsolete. Yeah. And in just in general, when you look and say, well, given what electronics were capable of 15, 20 years ago, and then comparing that with what you can do with modern computing hardware, wow, we can, if we sort of take this opportunity to redo the whole platform from the ground up, we can make it do, do a whole lot more, include a lot more automation, you know, require less out of the user, yeah. uh, much better user interfaces and user experience. So yeah, that, that's sort of the, the next generation platform is where you're able to rethink the whole thing and, and really have a lot of fun with it from an engineering's perspective. I would imagine that one of the shifts that w would have come along is the connection to other computers and other platforms as opposed to it being a bit more of a standalone type of... Um, yes. You know, especially certain medical equipment. Yeah, definitely in the last, say, decade, you've seen more and more in this... Uh, kind of laboratory instrumentation space where for, for big expensive equipment, not necessarily for small things, but for, you know, equipment that's going to be in the tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. They'll have ways of networking those together, both for, you know, whatever kind of test data that it's creating, it's able to store those in centralized databases, but then also where you're able to centrally monitor those to, to verify that they're, they're in good working order. You know, if you're a, a big lab that has, uh, 20 or 30 or sometimes 100 of uh, like say pieces of like chemical analysis equipment that are running and these things cost $100,000 a piece yeah. then you want to make sure that they're all getting as much uptime as possible and your you know your investments are worth it so yeah they'll, they'll invest in some kind of central monitoring software that's able to check them over the network and see uh, which ones require maintenance so you can plan those things out ahead of time and yeah that just wasn't possible with you know older technology right yeah 10 15 20 years ago it was like a, a spark that people mm -hmm. thought of but wasn't necessarily being implemented at the time yes so that's really interesting to me that number one that you kind of have to think about really long-lived products and and platforms and so forth but then also that you kind of came to me because you were like hey we're really getting in to Python. And mm -hmm. so I, I kind of wondered, like, maybe we could do a little, just super quick background on your background in programming. Yeah. So when I went to school, I graduated uh, from my undergrad in 01. So okay. kind of right in the middle of the dot-com boom was, was going there. And as an undergrad, I had to take, for the engineering uh, curriculum, you have to take the intro to computer science. And I think at the time, you had the option, depending on sort of which professor you had, if you were either going to learn C++ or Java. And okay. I think, I would say, thankfully, I ended up with C++. I, I didn't have to go too <laughs> okay. deep into it, but either way, 
it was, uh, yeah, so C++ and just, that was sort of my first experience with that level of coding. I mean, as a, like a little kid, I think I got exposed to like logo writer and QBasic and some of those kind of things I was playing around with on our, on our home computer, but didn't really do a lot with that. So, you know, one semester of C++ and then another part of the engineering curriculum there at my school was we had a numerical methods class. So you'd look at how to do numerical analysis numerical processing and we would look at implementing different algorithms whether it's for optimizing things or in that case we would do half of it in c plus plus and half of it we started using this platform and language called matlab yeah which uh people who aren't sort of in the industry aren't necessarily uh, familiar with what matlab is so that's something called uh, it stands for matrix laboratory and it's both a language and then it's also a runtime environment that's optimized specifically for numerical computing yeah, it's become a, a, an even bigger platform as they've kind of gone and yes. tried to find additional like solutions like cloud hosting and other things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, And it's a decent language for like a lot of kind of plain vanilla data analysis. Or even, I remember I had a friend who was working at a company doing some of the early gene sequencing and they were writing a lot of their algorithms in MATLAB. So it, okay. it was, it's, it's, it's kind of scientific computing. It's yeah. Pretty popular place to do it there. As soon as you need to get outside of Excel, like, yeah, you could do maybe raw numerical processing in Fortran, but you're not going to do data visualizations with it. And once you needed to get into that kind of heavy-duty number crunching and data analysis, then MATLAB is one of the main tools that people would turn to. Okay. So I ended up using MATLAB more and more, and by the time I graduated school, uh, I think I ended up my final semester using it in pretty much every one of my classes. So I was getting pretty familiar with it there. So they were in a lot of the universities as far yes. as the, oh, the yeah. certain programs you're in, in in the program you were in was mechanical engineering. Yes. Mechanical engineering and okay. they, uh, the, the math works, which is the company that makes MATLAB. They're, they were very keen to get uh, the new graduates very familiar with that. Cause that, that's one <laughs> yeah. of the tools they want to use. Right. So Definitely. they would, they would give us free licenses while we're in school, which is good because you know, it's uh, it's extremely expensive <laughs> yeah. once you're out in the, the professional market, it's uh, yep. it's it's a tool. You know, they pitch it. It has a value proposition. Like, yes, it costs money to use, but it's going to save you money in developing whatever product you're doing. Uh, if you're doing some kind of digital signal processing, developing algorithms around that, or controls work, then they have all kinds of specialized add-ons. Uh, they call them toolboxes that are sort of targeting various uh, particular computing tasks. I can think of lots of little industries that are like that, having worked in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. video and audio and and the sort of, if you are going to go to school, you know, in my case, I worked at a school for recording engineers, students had to come out and know Pro Tools. They had to be familiar with it. Or if they were going to work in film, they would need to know Avid and be familiar with those sure, sure. platforms. Even though there were other platforms that are around, it made sense. And then they would, we literally would have like certifications for those kinds of things. And so there's always that kind of interesting hook, you know, that, that's part of it. And there are, you know, side cases where other things are popping up. And I thought that was kind of interesting that this is one of the focuses that we thought we could talk about is that you started to transition away from using that. Maybe we could talk about how you were using MATLAB at, at your company now or, sure. or, or previously. And yeah, then my previous company. kind of when we get into that transition. Yeah. Yeah, so I was doing a lot of uh, like log file processing, or I was collecting data in the lab. You know, a lot of what I end up doing, I'm creating or designing new parts. You know, mechanical engineer, right? So I, I'm not just making yeah. circuits and things, but I, I'm making 
physical parts that we design with CAD software. And then once we are putting everything together, we need to start testing it and making sure things work properly. And a lot of the uh, equipment that I design and work on has lots of automation. It's so lots of motors and gears and you know things that are moving mechanisms around. Okay. And we were collecting some information from those, basically using some small embedded computers that would give us log files. And I needed to parse those so I could uh, pull the data out of those and create some graphs and kind of make sense of what the heck was going on with my my test setup. I was initially doing all that in MATLAB, but my workflow was that I would go to the this lab in another part of the building and run all my tests uh, on some computer there on a computer that I didn't I wasn't responsible for. You know, my it was a different part of the company, so I couldn't just install whatever I wanted on that computer. Okay. It's job is specific for doing the, that sort of work. and Yes, and I couldn't install, say, MATLAB because there's licenses required for every install. And like we said, it's thousands of dollars per seat. So uh, they weren't going to install a, a license just there for me to do that. Okay. So I would go to that machine. I would uh, capture these text files, you know, log files, put them on a thumb drive, and walk back to my uh, laptop uh, in my, or walk back to my desktop at the time at my desk and fire up MATLAB and do my analysis. Well, that's a lot of walking back and forth and pretty inefficient, right? Good old sneaker nut. So I had started when I was in grad school just before that job. I had played a little bit with Python as part of some projects. So I had gotten a little bit of exposure to it. When I was, was in this particular situation, I'm thinking, I wonder if Python would be able to serve the need here. So I started looking into that. And sure enough, you know, this is in the early to late, probably late 2000s. And okay. the numerical computing story for Python was really maturing heavily at the time. So they had consolidated, you know, it used to be not just NumPy, I think it was uh, Numeric, I think was another library at the time that were kind of competing within the Python space. So they had consolidated to just NumPy. Okay. And Matplotlib was coming along nicely. And I found, hey, yeah, all the things that I was using MATLAB for in this case, which were not this the super specialized code that MATLAB tries to or the MathWorks tries to hook you on, but it's just the plain vanilla, I need to open a, f- a file and parse it and m- make plots from it. Python was able to do that very well for me. And in fact, I found a portable distribution of Python that I was able to run right off my thumb drive that had an IDE uh, associated with it that's no longer uh, around now. But I could just walk down with my thumb drive, use that same machine that I didn't have the ability to install software on, and just run everything I needed to right off the thumb drive. Okay. And then right there, I could... The executable was there and yeah, yeah neat. Okay. Exactly. I, I could capture the files. I could do my data processing all right in one place. I didn't have to worry about any licensing fees. And so that was kind of the, the gateway drug, you know, the, the foot in the door for, yeah. hey, I think this, uh, this could work here. And, <laughs> and then sure enough, you know, I kept finding more and more uses for Python, usually doing various kinds of data analysis, but especially cases where I was not at my main pc where i had that matlab license and then i just i found that over time i was opening matlab less and less and less and then finally i realized you know what i can either have the company cancel my particular matlab license entirely or i can give it to someone else because i'm not even using it i haven't opened it in a year or something at this point wow what how long ago was that that was now over a decade at this point oh wow okay Um, I, i i don't even have uh matlab licenses anymore at my new job because i do everything i need to within python Nice. I wonder about a bunch of things there. I didn't even write this question down, but like I was thinking like, okay, so that that's Python 2, I'm guessing. Yes, I started probably 2.5 or 
two four two five somewhere in that range in grad school. Okay, and then probably two six around that time. Maybe we could just do a brief thing about you know over time. Was it hard for you? I'm as a non like we talked about not being like a software development shop where you have like deployed software and, and things like that. It, it sounds like it's fairly localized software. So transitioning to something like three maybe wasn't as painful as a company that would have to look across a set of architecture across an entire organization changing. Correct. Our our usage across my current and previous teams is pretty like you said, localized. We don't have a lot of software we're deploying anywhere. Okay. We're usually writing it for ourselves or for an, a couple people on our small team that we're sharing it with. Okay. And so there wasn't a need to say, oh, I need to make sure that I stay compatible with 2.7 because that's what we have out in the field. So instead, no, I, I, mean, I stuck with 2.7 until the, until the main libraries that I needed to run were really ready to go with that. Right. So that makes sense. Matplotlib and NumPy, especially, and then a couple others that I had used. But I probably jumped in around three, four, three, five, finally. Okay. And then, of course, once F strings hit, everyone wanted to go to three, six. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, especially with you know the kinds of work that you're doing. Yeah. I would guess it. You're kind of uh, one of the things that's come up a lot lately is debugging mm-hmm. um, programs and and so forth. Um, in and it sounds like you're doing a lot of logging. But do you still often use like just F strings to kind of like get things up on its feet and see how it's working? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I, I print out F strings all the time. They're nice and quick and dirty. Yeah. If I'm making a a small script that's not too hard to sort of fit the whole thing in your head at a time, then yeah, printing is totally fine. It's once I am building something that is bigger. Yeah. That's going to need to you know import from a whole bunch of different locations and then yeah, I'll start using. Uh, logging like Luguru is a great, great package for doing very easy logging within Python. Okay, I'll have to write that one. Uh, get a link for that one and include it. Yeah, it's nice. You can just import it, and basically everything else you need is right there. You don't have to do a ton of configuration. It, it's based on the the built-in system, uh, you know, Python logging, but it just makes it super easy to use right out of the box. It's somewhat drop-inable in a way. Yeah, it is totally. Okay, so. You on your own when it started doing all this. Yes. Um, what was the initial spark? I mean, you mentioned some of it, but was it that you had played with Python before and it was like a fairly easy language for you to wrap your head around? What, what, what were the things that made you choose that? Yeah, when I was in so when I was in grad school, I was taking a robotics class and was still using MATLAB for pretty much all the my grad school numeric computing needs. But in this particular class, I was starting to try to implement some particular algorithm, the details of which are lost to time. <laughs> but uh, I, it, it required some data constructs that didn't really exist in MATLAB. And I was trying to figure out how I wanted to do that, um, involve sorting and red black trees. And again, the details, I probably don't remember much of them at this point. But I, I found some references to a Python library that, in, that uh, implemented them. I thought, oh yeah, I remember I played around here and there with some Python. Let me let me see how that how that works, and that's kind of what really got me going with it at that point. Okay, and I ended up using it for that whole whole project, and it was doing some uh, doing some mapping of a space with uh, you know small robots that had little sensors on them, and trying to make 
sense of the early Roomba the mapping style kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, very much okay. like that. Oh, cool. What is the syntax of MATLAB like? Is it something that's easy for people to wrap it's their It's very head? similar to Python. Okay. Yes, it, it's uh, the I think in the underlying runtime engine it is implemented in Java, and so sort of a lot of the style of Java kind of leaks over into MATLAB. But it's lots of you know dot syntax. Um, okay. And not not tons of extraneous extra characters, so it's not like Perl or anything like that. Okay. Cool. So it was it was making that transition from the MATLAB syntax over to Python was pretty straightforward. Python developers from companies like NASA, Volley, and Spotify chose DeepGram's speech-to-text API for accurate, usable transcripts to power their voice bots podcast analytics, and video platforms. DeepGram automatically transcribes any audio with understanding features like summarization, topic detection, and language detection, so you can do more with your voice data. Get an API key and transcribe your first 200 hours for free at deepgram.com realpython. So then I guess I'd like to kind of journey deeper into your <laughs> sort of almost evangelism inside your organization for, mm-hmm. for Python, kind of being this champion. What were what were the kinds of things that you were suggesting to other people? And I, I guess maybe we could start with you were using it for these sort of logging tools and other things. Were there other projects that you started to implement going beyond that? Yes. So I ended up using... Python in a lot of kind of small ways and large ways. Okay. Early on, maybe something that's kind of a typical task for me was we had a mechanism that was moving a probe along two axes, so X and Y, uh, sort of along a table. Okay. And we wanted to measure how consistently and accurately that mechanism would move to a given location, just as part of making sure that it worked well enough. So we had this basically a spring-loaded gauge that it would you would uh, fix it in place well, with a fixture, I guess we call it in, in machining, but it holds okay. it in place and then you would move the probe up against it from left to right and it would be able to measure, okay, how far are we compressing this little spring-loaded tip on it? And it's, you know, down to, you know, thousands of an inch. So really, really accurate stuff. If I was going to have to manually do this, I would be, you know, controlling that that mechanism, tell it, okay, move over so it touches the pro- touches the uh, the gauge and then I have to write down or something, what whatever the number was on the screen, on the LCD screen, and then just keep doing that manually a bunch of times. That would be really tedious. I can imagine. <laughs> so fortunately, with this particular gauge that we had had a digital readout on it, and it also had a connector on it that you could plug in an RS-232 adapter okay. and talk to it that way with, with your PC. So, And at that point, it just like treats it like a keyboard, I think. So every time you took a measurement, I think you would send it a character, and then it would respond back. Uh, with whatever the current measurement was. Hmm. So, okay, now I've got a way to talk to it programmatically using the PySerial module for talking over serial ports. And I can combine that with also being able to programmatically control this mechanism. So now I could just write a simple for loop and have it move over to the point where it should be you know, making contact with that gauge, take a reading, maybe with a half-second pause or something in there, and then have it move away and then come back and do it again. And now I can take thousands of measurements and get, you know, really nice statistically significant data without having to sit there and 
Yeah, get coffee too. Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) So that's like just one small example. You do something like that and people like, oh, like that's kind of cool to be able to to do that and and get some good data. So people were watching you? Yeah, people would see that. And uh, then we also have, we had some bigger things as well. Like I had a piece of equipment that we would use in the lab for measuring how much torque you get out of a motor. We have these small uh, stepper motors, they're called, Hmm. and we want to verify that they're actually strong enough to, to do what we need. So they need to like hold at a certain amount. Yes. Like yeah. Amount. So, okay. you know, Cause the, these are the, the motors that are actually driving your mechanisms around. So it's, if you're trying to move something in X or Y or rotate stuff around, uh, it needs to be able to do it fast enough for, right. it, in this case, it was, um, I worked at a company that was making chemical analysis equipment that you would put in little vials that are full of some kind of sample. That's a liquid you need to analyze. And then there would be an automated, needle that would move over and kind of poke in the top of the vial and pull some of that sample out to inject it into the rest of the system and analyze it. Okay. So, you know, there's lots of, lots of motor axes going on there and you want to make sure that it can move fast enough for your throughput reasons. Yeah. So in any time that we either are specking out a new motor or we, maybe we want to replace an old motor that's already in use in our product, but we want to have a second supplier come online. So we're not just beholden to having one supplier that sells us a motor, we want to verify that, yeah, this new supplier, they're not just blowing smoke, but that it actually is, you know, produces the right amount of torque that we need for it. They will give you uh, a, a set of them to... Yeah, we get some samples. ...to test in your purposes? Yes. Okay, yeah. And it's especially important with stepper motors, the, the circuit that you're using to drive them will have a direct impact on how powerful they are. So you can't just take the... the uh, manufacturer's word for In the spec sheet or whatever. Yeah, the spec sheet because it when they test it, that's with whatever driver chip they were using, and that may not be the same as the driver chip you were using. So oh, okay. you really need to use your own circuit in that process. So we bought some equipment from uh, a company that would allow you to take torque measurements, uh, but it was really manual process. Again, I think you see the uh, the yeah. this is the pattern happening here. The theme. <laughs> it was a manual process and either you or your poor co-op or summer intern would have to sit there for many hours straight and take taking these measurements. And it involved um, you know pushing a bunch of buttons on this big machine and then looking at it again, a digital readout that was coming off of it. And at the same time, uh, bedding over to your laptop, usually in the lab and typing some commands that would tell the, the motor to spin up to a certain speed or something. So we were able to buy an expansion card for that piece of equipment that instead of just having buttons and LED readouts and a digital readout, now we had digital inputs that mapped to those buttons and we had digital outputs that would correspond to various LEDs that would, you know, indicators on it and an analog output uh, that would, you know, produce a volt, you know, zero to five volts output corresponding to what normally would have been on that digital uh, readout. Okay. And so now we could take that and combine it with a data acquisition box from someone like say National Instruments or some other companies that also have a Python API. And now we're able to use the laptop to basically take all the same readings that we would have had to just manually write down by looking at the screen. And in fact, we get much better data as a result out of this and we get it at a higher sample rate. I can imagine. And the consistency would be much better. Yeah. Way better than a, than the sort of human, mm-hmm. I don't know, slop, whatever you want to call it yeah. that would be involved in there. So then, you know, once we were able to not just automate the process of running the test and collecting the data, but then I was able to take that and make a GUI for it, driving the whole setup 
using uh, PyQt and then this really cool module called PyQt Graph, okay. which you can use for real-time data visualization. It's, it's uh, much faster than something like matplotlib, which is, you know, matplotlib is great for your publication quality graphics, but it's, it's kind of slow, where this is something that you could have graphs that are updating on the screen at, you know, 30 hertz, no problem. Yeah, so I was thinking more real-time? Yeah. Like, and, and as it's running? Okay. It's really smooth, and it allows you to pan and zoom around. It has a whole bunch of that functionality built right in without you having to implement it yourself. And it, it's all you know, using Pike or using Qt under the hood. So it's in C++ and it's fast and it's very efficient. So while it's updating, the, you know, multiple graphs on the screen at, you know, 30 hertz or more, it's really fluid. It's using like 3% of the processor power. So it's, okay. it, it's no big deal. So in the end, I have this really nice test set up that I can show anyone how to use and where previously you'd have to sit in front of it for, you know, possibly you know, multiple afternoons because you wouldn't want to do it all day long right. to get all the data you wanted. Now you can set it up and then, yeah, you walk away for 10, 15 minutes while it goes through and does all the tests. Cool. And it does them without messing up, which you surely were going to do over that span of time. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when you show people things like that, you know, they, they, they start to see that, yeah, this tool has a lot of value. We certainly, uh, we can, we can make that work. So it's like a kind of like this in order to get other people on board, like you mentioned that, the organization you're with now, like they're you know sending people to PyCon, mm-hmm. and you were able to to say, hey, let's bring a whole batch of people. Was there a process of showing other people, or would they just see the results of what you were doing and then come over and be interested? Or? A little bit of both, you know. So I think it was a lot easier to sell the company on the benefits of our various engineers having a good Python background. Okay. When they saw what we were able to accomplish, even though we were working remotely during COVID, you know. Oh, interesting. So the last two years. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we were not full-time remote, but, you know, I am a mechanical engineer. I do have to make physical things. I need to be in, in the lab and, and put them together with my hands. But I, imagine, uh, yeah. I was able to kind of set up some things so that I could run, run equipment remotely. So I set up some webcams and set up your remote access for my uh, computers that were were running some equipment in the lab, then I was able to control everything using Python. Even though I'm logging remotely from home, I'm basically writing some control programs that would make these mechanisms that I that I work on go through the various tests that we need them to do. But I was able to work on all of that from home and still get a lot accomplished, even though I wasn't right there in the lab. Now that's not necessarily the, the remote port, portion of that isn't necessarily the success story for Python, but the the fact that the work was happening at all, whether I was there or not, that was really the success story with Python, where we had sure we were in pretty early design phase where of this project, where we didn't necessarily have robust and complete firmware. So that kind of low level code I was talking about that that is what will drive this equipment when it goes out in into the field when we release this and sell it as a product, they're not going to use my Python code to drive this thing, thankfully. That's what I was thinking. They, that would still be in, you know, like a C or, or some other yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, typically C or C++. Although there are, there are lots of places now where Python is coming in there as well. We can talk about that another time. The, sure. That, but that C++ code wasn't really ready. There was some 
initial low-level stuff that was ready that would allow me to move some motors. But our team had exposed some, some Python bindings, basically a Python API, where I could control those individual motors or I could read individual sensors with Python. And so even though they don't have the full behavior of the system implemented in C++, they sort of gave us all the building blocks necessary with Python. All the touch points, if you will. Yeah. And then we, as the you know non-firmware team, but the, the teams who are familiar with how the thing is supposed to work, could go ahead and kind of prototype up a lot of that behavior. Cool. And verify that, yeah, it, it does these uh, mechanisms that we've been designing, that we're building, they work the way we want them to work. Then when our, you know, our management sees, oh, we're, we're able to accomplish a lot, even at a very early prototype stage with Python here, they saw the value in that pretty quickly. So then when I'm saying, hey, if we can uh, send some, some more people to PyCon, we can get more of us up to speed on a lot of this. Yeah. Have they paid for training in other situations? We have, yeah. We've, we've done, I think over the last year and a half, we've probably run three or four different training courses where we, we bring, uh, we, we're working together with an outside company that does, they have a remote instructor and that they have a nice online platform that we use for the actual training course itself. Cool. So it, it, the course is you know, real time. It's not live in person, but it's live remote. Yeah. We've done that a number of different times. We probably have had 40 or 50 people at least go through that training now across different parts of R&D. And we're actually going to run another one in another uh, couple of weeks. So yeah, the, the company's been real happy with that. I can imagine that you've gone on a journey that a lot of Python, you know, developers or people who are kind of experimenting in it, where you start with what would just be very script-like stuff, you know, like it, oh yeah, just this file that just runs straight through, and then you've progressed into creating packages. Because one of the things that we'll talk near the end about is that you have like a little library of stuff on PyPI that is stuff that maybe you use and work somewhat, but also stuff that you thought you could share that would be, I guess, more widely usable outside of like maybe just the, inside the organization. What was that journey like for you? And like, how far along did you start learning about the methods of packaging and that kind of tooling? Sure. My, my early work in Python for sure was just, they were scripts, you know, they were, they were barely programs. Yeah. They, they accomplished one particular task. You run the file straight through and that's, that was good enough. And then, yeah, as I started doing more and more of it, you start realizing, hey, there's code here that I'm either consistently copying and pasting across multiple uh, projects. <laughs> how, how can I just uh, pull that out into a, a separate module so I can import that? And then eventually, yeah, those even those parts got sort of self-contained enough that I was not only reusing them across my own projects, but then with my colleagues as well. It's like, hey, here's a, a module that I wrote for parsing data a certain way that that seemed like it would be useful okay and so i eventually i got sick of having to constantly respond to hey what's what's the newest version of that of that code because i also uh i wasn't as familiar with things like git or or github at the time so i i I think i started with mercurial for a long time was using that for my version control Mm, okay before eventually finally giving in and moving to to get github and everything but yeah i would my colleague was would be asking me, okay, what's the, the latest version of that of that file? So I have to keep sending them that. And eventually I said, well, I wonder if I could, this isn't anything that's proprietary. Like it's pretty uh, generic and I probably could just release that 
to something like PyPI. And then I can just tell them, hey, go pip install it rather than constantly bugging me for the newest <laughs> version of it. And it also makes right. it easier for me, right? If I'm setting up a, a new uh, a new test setup, I don't have to go track down, okay, where did I save the newest version of that file? Instead, I, I just know, yeah. Makes it very portable, right? Yeah. I started learning about, you know, it's sort of some of the more best practices, whether it's just a requirements.txt or whatever, so that if I, I'm sending some of my, my code that's not necessarily a module they're going to install, but they're just trying to look at a data analysis that I did, then I can list, yeah, here's all my requirements and requirements.txt. And that way nice. they, they know they can just pip install that in a new virtual environment and they're kind of off and running. So, so it took time, though, to get to that for sure. Yeah. What does that timeline look like, you think? So, I mean, I look back at this particular module I'm thinking of, the first one that I that I ended up releasing to PyPI. My first release to PyPI was in 2016. And if, amusingly enough, uh, it was immediately like same day followed up by three bug fix releases <laughs> because I had gotten some of the metadata wrong in PyPI. That's always the way it happens. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> but it wasn't my first sort of, it wasn't my first release of that code internally. So actually it was released at version 1.3 because I had you know some version 1.0 that was just internally that I was using as my own version numbering system before I released it publicly. But yeah, so I had 1.3 and then 1.3.1, 1 1.3.2, 1 1.3.3 right away. <laughs> um, yeah. But if I look back at that code, I actually, 1.0 would have been in 2010. So that was the first time I started kind of oh, wow. putting okay. that, at least that particular module together into something that that I could easily package up and send it to, to someone else as, hey, here's a standalone module that you can import these sort of utility functions from. It was for implementing scan F. So, you know, in C or in... Uh, of course, I was coming from MATLAB. There's uh, a function for just taking a string, and maybe that string it has some numbers in it interspersed with some other other text, and you want to be able to just pull those numbers out of it. And you can kind of provide yeah. the scanf function uh, a template saying this is this is what it should look like, and then there's a couple special formatted strings that you put in there to say oh, there's an integer here, so I'm going to stick a percent i here, or it's a floating point number here, so there's percent f there. Okay, and it's just really you know simple and straightforward to use. Uh, and like I said, it's common. It's coming from C. They, they use that scanf function, and then in MATLAB, there's a S scanf function as well. So I was familiar with that. So familiarities there. Yeah, but right. I was looking around again. This is back in 2010. Looking around and couldn't really find any packages that that did that off the shelf. Uh, nothing in PyPI, and the solutions that you or not solutions the the responses that you would get from whether it was the looking at some of the core team dev discussion boards, and they basically said, yeah, you should just use regular expressions for that. And that's true. You can use regular expressions for that, but it felt like using a sledgehammer to try to push a tack in. Like yeah. it's just really over. And there you have to, you have to go through the arduous task of learning regular expressions that you'll eventually forget. Yes. Uh, and you forget them every time. <laughs> Which I have done probably three times, yes. right? Yes. And, and <laughs> you know, some of those can be surprisingly complicated to come up with, with a robust regular expression that will work in all cases where you're trying to look for a floating point number, even if maybe it has scientific notation in it, you know, like there's, it gets pretty complicated. These are things that even if you're going to do it as a regular expression, you're going to end up either copying and pasting that code all the time, or you're going to put it into a library. Right. So I ended up uh, finding a recipe that someone had written on like active state or something that did what I was looking for. And so I took that and kind of cleaned it up a little bit, 
made sure I put a link at the top of the file to where I had found that that solution so I could uh, go back and find it later if I needed to. Added a couple other formatting options as well that that weren't covered in there that were part of the kind of scanf spec. And then package that up. So great. Now there's a scanf package on PyPI and it's actually pretty widely used. I was surprised to, to realize that. When I, That's cool. I got an email, you know, a couple, about a month ago now saying, hey, this is a, a critical package. So I went and looked and it, it barely squeaks into that uh, category. It's like, I think what's the top 1% is oh, considered critical. And it's like, you got the, the PyPI message. I got the message. Yeah. About the news recently. It, it was at like 0.9%. Yeah. It, it was barely, it was barely in there. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, it was, I was like, wow, that. So you're getting a key, I guess. Yeah. Then. Well, I, I just, I turned on the two factor authentication. I'm, I okay. didn't right. fill the need. I was worried about the key if I would lose them or, or whatever. So <laughs> whereas, you know, I already do 2FA with some other stuff and just use a, uh, authenticator app so i figured i can turn that on yeah. that's no problem i didn't see it as being too big of a of a hassle so so one of the things that a lot of organizations do instead is then host the stuff internally mm-hmm. and you said you felt that there was nothing proprietary within this the first couple of libraries that you've put up on PyPI. it just made more sense to not have to think about like i would guess maybe the organization wouldn't have the infrastructure set up to create their own little solution for like hosting packages and so forth, potentially. Correct. So I've, the last company I was at, they were starting to go down that road where they were doing enough kind of internal Python releases of packages that they set up. Initially they were using a DevPy server, which uh, for people that aren't familiar with that is basically a small kind of local mirror, not even mirror, but a small version of PyPI that is whatever packages you put in there. Yeah. And then you can configure your local pip so that it will first look at your this local DevPy server before it goes out to the, the global PyPI server. So that way, even if you have some namespace collisions or something, it'll pull the local one first. Okay. They started off doing that, and then they eventually moved to a solution with uh, Artifactory, I think, which has uh, some plugins for handling Python packaging. But my current company doesn't do anything like that. We're looking at some of those solutions. I definitely see why you would do that because for sure, if you if you want to package up some proprietary code but still make it easily uh, pip installable, yeah, you know how how do you do that? You will obviously you want to have an inter- internal method of doing that. And we'll probably move to something that also does some uh, some mirroring of the external PyPI packages as well. So if we have certain dependencies that we need to start relying on, then at some point, if that starts working its way more into production, then we'll ostensibly set up a better better production workflow there where it's maintaining uh, local copies of all those PyPI packages that you're, you have dependencies on so you're not worried about something disappearing. Yeah. What was your experience uh, like? You've mentioned a lot of it, you know, kind of like experimenting and, you know, kind of first releases and having to do lots of updates and so forth. <laughs> the tools that we're using, has that situation you know, like setup tools and some of these other kinds of things that have been changing over time for doing packaging. How's your experience been with that? And, and do you have a, a solution that you're happy with now? It's been a little difficult getting going. At first, again, this is, you know, 2016 was when I first put my package, the first package up on PyPI. So the documents were okay at the time. They've gotten much better since then. Okay. Especially there was a, a recent major update to the whole Python packaging kind of recommendations yeah. to reflect all the pyproject.com all stuff. But as I was trying to understand, like, so how does this setup.py file work? How am I supposed to put that together? And I think I found I found a, a template that someone else had, had used. 
and, and kind of put forth as like, here's the best practices uh, set up.py. So I took that and adopted it for myself. And that, okay, good. that mostly worked fine for me every, every once in a while. I'd have to go back and revisit that and just make sure I remembered how the process worked. Cause I'm not putting out too many releases of the things that I have on PyPI. So it's not like I'm hooked up with, uh, you know, CI, CD. And okay. every time I check something into GitHub, it automatically goes to, to, to PyPI. So I do have to remember what that process looks like. But, you know, I made some notes for myself of what exactly the steps are for me um, using Twine or something to update it. Now with, yeah, with the changes to PyProject.toml, I need to start taking a look at that because that is, sort of it, it's clearly the way of the fu- the future there that you're supposed to to do it so I, I need to start yeah i need to start looking into that yeah i'll link to some resources on real python for you this week i want to shine a spotlight on another real python video course it's titled building python project documentation with mk docs the course is based on a real python step-by-step project by frequent guest martin Broyce. And in the video course, instructor Darren Jones shows you how to work with MK Docs to produce static pages from Markdown, pull in code documentation from Docstrings using MK Docstrings, follow best practices for project documentation, and use the material for MK Docs theme to make your documentation look great, and how to host your documentation on GitHub pages. I think using tools like this can make what seems like a daunting task so much easier. And I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to automate production of your project's documentation. Your users will truly appreciate it. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections. And where needed, include code examples for the technique shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So one of the things that we talked about at PyCon was that you've been experimenting with prototyping and using CircuitPython for that, yeah. for some of the mechanical engineer things. Um, not only you know work, but also kind of playing around with it at home. How's that going, and, and what do you think of CircuitPython as a platform? It's fun to play with. Yeah, I, I had been reading about it and was trying to think kind of what do I want to try this out with and what what opportunity do I have? And then during kind of early COVID, I was working from home, like I mentioned, a couple days a week. Yeah. And the room that I'm that I made at home has a pellet stove for heat because it gets pretty cold. It's kind of a three-season room. Okay. And uh, during the winter, though, it would get really cold overnight because we leave the heat off in that room. And in the morning, I would come in and turn that pellet stove on. And I was wondering, I found myself wondering, how long does it take this to actually warm up in the morning? And then once it it comes up to temperature, you know, it has some kind of thermostat built in that it cycles on and off throughout the day. How effectively was it regulating the temperature in this room? I mean, come on, that engineers. So I think about these things. So <laughs> I, uh, there's gotta be a solution. <laughs> that's right. You know, so I, so I ordered some stuff. I, off I ate a fruit, got a little itsy bitsy, you know, M zero and a temperature sensor and a little small OLED screen Okay. and made a little, you know, just a little breadboard setup that would, take the reading of the current temperature and humidity from that sensor and then display it on the little OLED screen. And it would also uh, produce a little graph of what the temperature had been for the last two hours. So I could kind of see as I'm sitting at my desk and, okay, it's getting warmer. But if I want to look back and say, you know, oh, it's taken, you know, a half hour to go up 10 degrees, you know, it's it's very geeky, of course. And yes, uh, I'm definitely an engineer. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it was fun. I really enjoyed doing that. And, uh, and it was... 
it was definitely a bit of an adventure there just because I found that a lot of the functionality I wanted was there in CircuitPython, and I could cobble together something pretty quickly that at least would you know, read the temperature and then have a printout on the screen was just a number. But then the graph started getting interesting. There was There are some very, very rudimentary kind of drawing operations that are available within CircuitPython. And they've gotten a little bit better, but basically you can draw a, a polygon on the screen uh, or you can draw individual lines or you can draw rectangles, round rects, circles, things like that. But making a graph, which you know is a bit more complicated there, that didn't exist. So there was something called a spark line that was in that same module for, for drawing polygons and such. But the spark line... You know, basically, it's like a very simplified line graph, but it doesn't have any axes or anything on it. It doesn't have any kind of tick marks so that it, it just shows you... A general trend. A general, yeah, what's the trend been? Has it been, kind of been wiggling around or has it been generally going up or generally going down? That's kind of what these spark lines are, are okay. for. So I ended up writing, you know, again, my own little kind of module there that would create a graph instead. But I, there was a lot more than that had to go into that. But it, it was fun to kind of have to think through the logic of, okay, how do I figure out where the tick marks need to be and how do I auto scale this so it kind of makes sense uh, initially as the temperature is kind of the room's coming up to temperature versus once it starts cycling and how do I make it so that it's not just showing me you know a three degree window and there's no ticks on the screen because I have them every five degrees or something so right okay but yeah so that was that was kind of a fun project with circuit Python and I had I enjoyed doing that enough that then I went ahead and picked up Again, from uh, from Adafruit, they have the MagTag, which is a ESP32 device that has an e-ink display on it, and it has Wi-Fi. Yeah, okay. So my kids are always asking, like, what what's the weather going to be like for the day? Uh, but some of my kids aren't young enough, or still young enough, they don't have phones. Um, and I was thinking, hey, it would be kind of cool to have like a little display that we just kind of leave running in the middle of the house that would show the current temperature. And again, again, you'll see uh, trends here and how I tend to think about things with a, a graph of the temperature, the precipitation forecast for the next day in the 24 hours. Okay. And so I, I was able to pull that together in CircuitPython as well. It you know goes over Wi-Fi to the Open Weather uh, website, uses their API to to get the weather forecast information. And it's free for the amount that I end up using it. Right. That's and, something I've looked into recently yeah, too. And it's pretty cool yeah. just to, to put something together like that. Uh, and my kids actually, you know, they walk past the little display in the center of the house and they, they look at it. So, you know, where I grew up having just a thermometer sitting on the outside of the window right. that I could look at and see the current temperature. And of course you look out, and you know, the current conditions, but that doesn't tell you what the high is going to be for the day or at what part of the day it's going to be, what temperature or whatever. So and where are we headed? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's fun to do that. That's cool. The mag tag, like it literally has like a magnet on the back of it. You to, can like, so it, throw it on a fridge yeah, or has, whatever. It or has something. four like mounting holes on it, and then they sell some standoffs with some magnetic feet that you can add to it. Oh, okay. So yeah, you could. The, one of their use cases, you know, is or that they they push there on on Adafruit. One of their examples they show is yeah, you could have the magnetic feet on the back, and then you can put a a battery pack on it with a light poly oh, batteries. Okay. Yeah, and right, you, right. And then if since it's e ink. When it's not changing or updating the display, it uses very, very little power for that. Yeah. So the battery life then becomes a direct function of, well, how often do you update the display and how often does it have to go online to use Wi-Fi? Right. For the weather, it's yeah. like, how often so, do I need to do that? Yeah. yeah. So if, you, if you're doing okay, that... Cool. Um, yeah, Wi-Fi is probably the most expensive element there. Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> as far as energy use, yeah. But cool. I even started using CircuitPython at work here and there. We had, again, just looking to do some some simple, quick and dirty prototypes where we wanted to be able to turn on and off some solenoids or some some motors that were just a straight DC motor. And we needed something that we could programmatically you know, switch on and off 24 volts uh, to be able to control these solenoids and have something that could, could control multiple sets of that. So has that become like a, a bit of a toolkit that you you have that you can like you have like a handful of little controllers yeah. that you can pull out and say, all right, this could work for this situation, like you know, like a toolbox. Yeah, we've probably got at least four or five test setups at work that are that are using okay. some of these. You know, there's using the the feather to to drive those. Nice. I would imagine in the industry that you're in that precision is like super crucial. Mm-hmm. So when building like components and so forth, is it something that you would even do like 3D printing of of things to test stuff out or is it required much more precise machining? It depends on what we're doing. We use a lot of 3D printing for sure. Okay. We have, if you're just making like a, a bracket to hold something for your test setup, just to, to hold two things yeah. fixed in place relative to each other, then yeah, we do 3D printing all the time for things like that. But we also have a machine shop at work like in the building. Oh, okay. So that as we're making prototypes, yeah, it's a it's a decent sized place. There's probably a thousand people there at the at this building. And we've got a full on machine shop that has what five or six people full time there. Wow. And so yeah, as we're designing parts and we need to machine something out of aluminum or out of uh, steel or whatever, you can you design it up in CAD and have the uh, have the machinist make it for you, which is it's pretty cool as a as an engineer. That's certainly one of the the most fun things is the first time that you have designed a part in CAD and then you get to hold that physical part in your hand. That <laughs> it's like just, Christmas. <laughs> you know, someone just like hogged that thing out of a giant chunk of aluminum and it's now sitting in your hand. It's all shiny. It's like, that's, this is really cool. Yeah. That's pretty neat. I, I feel like we hit a lot of the core ideas that we wanted to touch on. I thought maybe if you want to like, share a few of the other projects that you've created that you're, you're already kind of put up in PyPI if you're comfortable with that. Sure. So I, I mentioned the scanf module or package there, but there's a couple, probably the one that I use the most at work is somewhat of a, it's very specialized, shall we say, but uh, if I'm doing some kind of data processing and I create a graph, it's very, very common to just visualize what's going on there. And then, well, what do you want to do with that graph? Well, a lot of times you want to throw it in an email to someone or uh, in a chat message, or you want to right. put it in a report, yeah, a report or something, right? Lots of different ways of doing it. So the without this module, what you'd have to do then is you know save that uh, to a file and then go find that file and you know attach it to your email or copy and paste it or whatever. But you have to go, it's, it's a multi-step process uh, there. But a lot of the work I'm doing is interactive, where I'm kind of, I'll generate this graph, and then I'll make a change to it and generate a different graph. And it's similar to some of the workflows that people would do with Jupyter Notebooks, but I ended up just doing it all in, in PyCharm. Okay. But I, I found, uh, again, looking online to see, hey, is there a solution for how I can copy a figure from Matplotlib to the clipboard so that I can just paste it into something else? And I found some you know Stack Overflow uh, comment that showed how to do it at least in, in one way and then in a different Stack Overflow comment that showed how to do it and it's a different OS or whatever. So I pulled all those together into a package 
very very uh, imaginatively named ad copy fig handler so it's just <laughs> a nice. handler that uh you know when you when you hit uh, control c or command c if you're on the mac it'll copy that figure uh, up to your system clipboard and then you can just you know, switch over to whatever other app you're going to paste it in and hit paste, and there you go. And it drastically simplifies that process. And it's specifically matplotlib? Yes, matplotlib. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, depending on what platform you're on, you either need to be using Qt as the, the plotting backend or um, HTK, I think, is the other one that I support. TK, unfortunately, which is the, the default backend that's supported by by python by itself doesn't quite have what we need to be able to copy it to a clipboard so it does require one of these other backends but i use it all the time and a bunch of my colleagues use it all the time and then once i started putting it up on pypi and on github i get feature requests and i i was like wow other people also find this useful that's really a a feeling (laughs) yeah you know i i enjoy making tools not just you know, making a product, but I, I do like making tools that I use and then that other people use as well. It's very satisfying. That's my absolute favorite thing of being a, a you know, a programmer is just like, th- yeah, not even necessarily solving my problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. but creating, like seeing other people like so frustrated and like just making their life easier and saving them time. And, and just that sort of appreciation that, you know, you were like, magically solving this thing for them and and they're so happy it's like such a great feeling yeah so i've got that module up there and then let's see other things i've got on on pypi i have some older ones that i don't do a whole lot with anymore okay but one newer one that's that's kind of been a, a little project for a while uh called canaveral which is a an application and file launcher so this is kind of one of my more ambitious projects to date as a sort of personal project where it's uh PyQt based, and it's similar to something like, say, I think what I'm basing it on was there was, used to be one for Windows called Launchy that okay doesn't exist anymore, but it's similar to doing like a spotlight search on your Mac, or say if you're on Windows and you hit the Windows key and start typing, and it searches your menu for you. The problem I was running into, say with here's a good example on Windows, I frequently end up trying to remotely log into another computer using a VNC program called Tiger VNC. So I hit the Windows key, I type Tiger, and what does Windows do? It oh so helpfully, maybe 70% of the time, will suggest, oh, you'd like to do a web search for Tiger Woods. Right. No, I I really don't. (laughs) I have a shortcut in my start menu for Tiger VNC, but for some reason, it thinks that that's what I would prefer instead. Yeah. I've had to make a change in in my Mac um, Spotlight things to say just don't do the web yeah. thing, please. Yeah, it's really annoying. <laughs> and so, you know, there's lots of tools around for for doing this. Alfred on the Mac is great, and, and some other tools as well. But there wasn't one that I really liked for Windows, and so I started started running one. So, being a launcher called Canaveral, nice. And yeah, it's all it's all in Python. So it's it's available on. PyPI, although I would recommend probably using a tool like PipX to install it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a whole uh, episode about tools to add yeah. via PipX. Yeah, PipX that's is very great. cool. PipX is really great. But yeah, so that's awesome. If people are interested in checking it out, they're welcome to. Yeah, there's like about 10 projects or nine or 10 mm-hmm. projects up there that people can check out. So I have these weekly questions I thought I would ask you. And the first one is what are you excited about in the world of Python? So the uh, keynote at 
PyCon about PyScript just uh, blew my socks off. That okay. Was so cool. Like just the, the, the sheer, not audacity, but the, uh, I don't know, it just the, it took a lot to do that kind of a live coding demo that was that, yeah. I don't know, it just, it really was trying to take on an awful lot. And man, he nailed it. So that, that got me thinking more about, you know, WASM and, and things that are, that, that, that with WebAssembly that, PyScript uses to, to, to accomplish what it needs to do. So I started looking to that and then learning more about this to go along with WebAssembly or WASM. They have this WASI, the WebAssembly systems interface, I think hmm. that because WebAssembly, if you're able to run Python code in the browser, which is sort of where this eventually ties back into here, yeah, that is running in a virtual machine in your browser. And so if you were able to run that code locally, you would still be running in a virtual machine that doesn't, have any way of talking to the rest of your you know, system resources, like your file it's system, things like that. sort of in a sandbox yeah. of sorts. So right? there's this other, this other standard that they're working on called the WebAssembly uh, systems interface. And that then is, is the appropriate interface then for WebAssembly to talk to other resources on your local machine. Yeah. And that sort of, cool. if you combine all these together with something like PyDyed, maybe this starts to become has a lot of potential as being a way of of being able to distribute Python applications. Uh, yeah, and that in your field would need that kind of connectivity. Yeah, and I don't, you know, it's not necessarily that that's a professional uh, thing that I care about, but just I'm really excited to see where that goes. Yeah, just because I have tried to make some small utilities again, whether it's personal or professional, to distribute and use, you know, Py2 app or Py2 exe, Py installer. Yeah, and they they can work. They have their uh, limitations in, in various places, but being able to do something that's even cross-platform through through this WebAssembly that that sounds really intriguing to me. So I'm very curious to see what happens with that. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. I, I'm I'm definitely gonna find some links and connect that stuff up. Awesome. What's something that you want to learn next? In this case, it doesn't have to be Python. It can be yeah, whatever. I've, I've got a number of ideas for little projects. I'm sure that'll be surprising given that. But, <laughs> what? But uh, <laughs> in particular, you know, I mentioned we've, we've got these boards at work that we use CircuitPython to, uh, to control higher power loads. You know, so you've got your your feather or whatever that just has a 3.3 volt logic output on it, but you want to be able to switch some, you know, say a 24 volt uh, power signal coming from somewhere else, whether that's with solid state relays or FETs or whatever. Okay. And we've kind of had to make just hand soldered some custom circuits for doing that in these cases. But I have a number of places where those would be help would be kind of handy, whether that's at work or in hobby uses where you want to turn solenoids on and off or something. And, uh, little DC motors, and I haven't really found any good solutions for that that are sort of prepackaged. You know, I want something that I can either is packaged as like a feather wing that I can drop on top of one of these feathers from Adafruit, okay. or a hat that I can put on top of a of a Raspberry Pi. And the solutions I see are either ones that only handle maybe one or even two outputs, or they're really expensive and they're aimed at like OEM customers because you're trying to make you actually integrate this into a real product. And they're you know 100 bucks or something. So I I want to learn how to use like a, a PCB layout tool like KiCad or something, and be able to yeah. to design like a nice compact board that can handle I don't know four to eight outputs or something that just has nice connectors. You can just plug a solenoid in and then control it with the PWM output of your uh, of your microcontroller using Circuit Python. I think that'd be really slick. 
and would be something that a lot of people could use in different situations. I had her on really early in the show, Thea Flowers, uh, yes, Star Girl. Yes. She uh, is really deep in Geekad now <laughs> and doing lots of interesting stuff. So I'd, I would definitely check her blog out. Um, I know she had like resources for like learning more about it, but that has been one of those things where I, I fool around with like soldering guitar pedals and other things together and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I've thought about the same thing. Like, man, I really would like to, because I, I think I mentioned this on a previous show, but the, the idea of like manufacturing anything used to be like, you have to make a thousand yeah. and it's going to be, you know, in, insane. You know, I'm thinking of the days of creating CDs or DVDs or yes, whatever. Yes. And the idea that you can just one off two off circuit boards is like insane to me. Like it I is. bought kits to like, you know, etch my own boards. And it was just like this freaking biohazard like <laughs> situation of creating all this stuff. And then like, how am I going to dispose of this? And, ah. and so like the idea of just like, you know, in the tens of dollars, you know, making these it's boards amazing. is just fascinating. It's absolutely amazing yeah, what's out cool. there now. So yeah, that's what I want to learn how to do. I, it's totally outside my kind of comfort zone. I've, I've hand soldered stuff before, made little circuits, but uh, this would require me to learn both, how some of these specific circuits would really need to be made, but and then do the layout that that's a whole new yeah area for me. So yeah, and you can do like you know double sided boards and all the graphics and yeah, it's amazing, cool. So how can people follow the work that you do? Well, they're welcome to check out my GitHub profile or my okay. PyPI profile. Probably there's not as much going on in PyPI, but definitely GitHub that has links to all these different things we've been talking about today. Yeah, I'll include links to those. And uh, if they want to hook up professionally, then yeah, look me up on LinkedIn. Okay. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really fantastic to talk to you. This has been great. I've been listening to the show for a long time. So, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) Absolutely. Cool. Thanks. Thank you very much. And don't forget, DeepGram is the preferred speech-to-text API of Python developers. Get accurate transcripts from any audio with features for understanding. Try it by transcribing 200 hours free at deepgram.com slash realpython. I want to thank Josh Burnett for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.